worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. Our guest for episode number 73 is David J. You're right now listening to perhaps his biggest single, No New Tale to Tell, that he recorded with Love and Rockets from 1987's Earth, Sun, Moon. David achieved fame with Bauhaus, his goth band, fronted by Peter Murphy, featuring the rest of the Love and Rockets members, David's brother, Kevin Haskins, and Daniel Ash, who has been one of my past guests. Besides his work with Bauhaus and Love and Rockets, he's released something like 10 albums and a bunch of EPs since 1983. He's written some stage musicals. He's done a lot of work with spoken word poetry, both as poetry writer and as providing the instrumental backing behind, for instance, his friend comics legend Alan Moore. Today we're going to be talking about a brand new single, The Auteur, which is an ominous remake of one of his 2002 songs. This time in light of the Me Too movement, actually features Rose McGowan doing some spoken word stuff in the coda. And we're going to talk about Vaudeville Ghostlight from the 2016 album Carpe Noctem, which is actually credited to MC Nightshade and the Theater Bazaar Orchestra. And then we're going to discuss Eulogy for Jeff Buckley, 2011 from his Not Long for This World album. And we'll conclude by listening to The Day That David Bowie Died from Vagabond Songs, 2017. Also in preparation for this, I read his book, Who Killed Mr. Moonlight? Bauhaus Black Magic and Benediction. That's from 2014, credited to David J. Haskins. For more information, see davidjonline.com. For more information about this podcast, check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And we would appreciate your support at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will have played a little bit of No New Tale to Tell as a thing that the average American listener would have heard you on, but we should get very quickly to the new stuff. Yeah. So I am honored to be able to play this just hot off the presses recording of The Auteur. So I noticed you had a version on the 2002 Guitar Man EP. Can you say something about the origin of this song and why you decided to redo it now? At that time, I was I had an apartment in Hollywood. I was actually going through the process of interviewing actresses myself for some stage productions that I'd written, and um, was hearing stories of exploitation, you know, in the film world because a lot of them would be expected in in uh, Hollywood were looking for work in film, and just like so many stories about being exploited by producers and people in that industry. And I felt very empathetic towards them, the actresses. And so that, that song just came out of that first-hand experience. And then, of course, now, with the whole like Me Too business, it becomes very relevant, even more so. It's a very old story. It's been going on for years and years and years, but now it's come really come to light. And the victims of that scenario are standing up. And so... I planned to do this before all of the, the whole Me Too thing happened because I just felt an affinity for the song. 
as a song. And I just felt like sometimes I rediscover old songs and I want to revisit them and do them in a different way. And that was one of those. And then it just, as things panned out, it became more and more pertinent. My original idea, actually, for this was to have Rose McGowan sing the lead vocal and I would do the music. But that didn't quite work out just because of logistics and she was busy working on her album and finishing her book. But she made an 11th hour appearance and recorded a spoken word part, which I incorporated as a part of a coda. It works really well, I think. Yes, so it almost sounds like folks are about to hear two songs, that it fades out completely, and then we've got a little coda there. Yes, and Rose, she recorded that. She was in Paris, I was in LA, and I got her to record it on her phone, and then just send it to me. She recorded, where I'm saying the auteur, I replaced her voice when she says the auteur, so it's more like a back and forth uh-huh. call and response, and I think that worked out really well. Yeah, it's got a bit of a Serge Gansburg thing going on there, I think. She pronounces the auteur the way you do, like the American way, but I pronounce it the European way, the auteur. I didn't have a way of pronouncing it. I actually looked it up this morning. Like, how am I? What? There's diff- yeah, there's, there's different ways. But, uh, me being of European descent, so I fall into the, the European pronunciation. Yeah. 
So yeah, totally different approach. I mean, it's slower, it's lower key, it's a different voice entirely. It's more sing-song in the old version, whereas this version, you're doing a little more of a uh, Nick Cave, John Cale sort of voice, not quite spoken. It's more ominous. Yes. It has more gravitas. Still very beautiful. I mean, the previous version, usually, you know, it's not uncommon to go back and redo something when the old version was something like a sketch, but the old version had... You know, giant strings on it. It was very developed, but this takes it to a whole other level in terms of the level of swooshiness and chiming guitars and different bits of sonic majesty. More strings and a 20 voice male choir, which is actually one man, <laughs> which is Paul Wolfish from Swans. Ah. And he was actually very much part of this whole production. And he did the string arrangement and did the recorded a lot of the, uh, the basic track. Toby, you've mentioned it, Cave, we have, um, Mr. Toby Dammit from the Bad Seeds playing drums on this. Ah. The guitarist Sean Eden from Luna. 
brilliant guitarist and then Heather Powie was the the violinist and there's a cello on there viola and also the very talented Emily Jane White who sings some beautiful backing vocals on it multi-tracked very ethereal yeah so it's a big production and was this pretty traditionally recorded in terms of getting everybody in a studio in succession or was part of this live or some of this over the internet mailing stuff around it was partly in the studio I mean and a certain amount of file sharing and it was recorded by uh, the drums were put down in uh, Germany I think it was in Hamburg when Toby recorded the, the drums he was on tour with Nick Cave and just grabbed some studio time and then Paul did his a lot of his work in New York City and I recorded my parts in Los Angeles and then I found, Paul flew out then from LA I flew him out to work on the uh, mix and then I did a final sort of finessing of the mix just a few days ago in LA and that's when I got Rose's contribution and flew that in and at the end I had the idea of taking all the strings and reversing them and putting them through a pitch shifter and then using time stretch technology to make it sound very ominous and I I love the way that came out very cinematic brooding it's like a dark cloud rolling in even the pad at the very beginning is that keyboard or is that the backward strings it's a Wurlitzer mainly which Paul played. Because that sounds like it's going to be a very ethereal when, when that comes in. And so is that bass played very high, the main riff there, or is that low guitar? It's bass, yeah. And guitar. It's a melange of all of those instruments. Well, it's uh It sounds like it's going to be a very ethereal piece, but then becomes, as soon as the, the vocals come in, becomes very much in the Neil Young domain in terms of guitar-heavy, very natural-sounding vocal, very natural-sounding everything. You know, there's still, when there are keyboards, it's like Fender Rhodes sort of sound. There is piano in there? Yes, there is. Acoustic piano. And, yeah, a lot of instruments going on. The yearning steel string. I love exactly how big an orchestra one can make it just by sliding around on a, a steel string there. Was this a lap steel? No. No, okay. There's an electric guitar. He's very good with textures. Yeah. There was a lap steel on the, on the original version. Right. That overall had a, just a much more country flavor to it. To God is from Godless Ghost Girl, he's the author. The matchless Bengali. There's a country feel to that album, Estranged, which is what it was originally. It was recorded during that time, but came out on the EP that was released simultaneously with the album uh, Estranged, or just before the album. Yeah, I was wondering about that, what the rationale for that release was, that some of that EP is on the album. It's just that this was the single, and was this the B-side, the two versions of it, to the maxi single or something of the Guitar Man? I wanted to release a an EP before the album, and I had extra tracks that I didn't have enough space to put on the album, so they became part of the EP. And the, the main track on that was, yeah, as you said, a, a cover of Bread's The Guitar Man. All the rest of the songs are original. Okay, I didn't know if this was because it didn't didn't thematically fit with the album or something. I mean, this is not certainly in the theme of estranged. But... No, it didn't because that album is so personal and it's mm. it's my story, you know. So it didn't fit in. Whereas the Guitar Man did. The Guitar Man resonated with the subject matter of the actual album. You're trying to make this thing that started as a country song more creepy. Yes. Yeah, you know, we're kind of getting into Bauhaus territory in terms of this, yes. this repeating when you're repeating the auteur, auteur, and just extending that even before the spoken, straight up spoken word part comes in, just becomes more of a, a mantra. Yeah, it's more menacing. Like when you do the, the actual coda there, 
what went into the choice to just make it kind of stark there? Because I could also see, like, if you're going into a mantra territory and it's supposed to sound meditative, then, well, put a giant wash of reverb on it. Like, that's kind of what you did in the Love and Rockets days. Maybe do it in unison with Daniel and put a big wash of reverb so you can't even tell that it's your voice. I didn't even really know, frankly, what your voice specifically sounded like just from hearing, like, the Love and Rockets self-titled album when I was introduced to your music. So, you know, that's not been the pattern with your solo stuff, which is often very personal and your voice is just very out front. And this is just what it sounds like. Rose asked for her voice to be just raw and exposed, which I think works really well. I mean, I have got reverb on my voice in that end coda section, which works in contrast because I'm portraying this little mini drama there that plays out the end. And I am taking the part of the exploitative predatory of her. And she's the starlet. And well, she's the starlet who's been through it. And she knows she's gone through that experience. I often see sound in visual terms. And I just saw it as this looming shadow of the auteur. So he becomes very menacing and overwhelming and she retreats to a degree but then then there's the payoff at the end where she has the upper hand i say the auteur and she says must die <laughs> it's a little film noir so just the choice of that term itself like i don't know that i've heard harvey weinstein referred to as an an auteur usually it's like the woody allen like the guy who's the, the whole project that you know the film or whatever up and down is supposed to just reflect the singular voice even though for a film or something like that it never actually does but that that's at least kind of the reputation of somebody whose artistic presence is larger than life and pushed out there as a identifiable commodity yeah and the guy who oversees everything and writes and directs and all of you know all of the above and i i know from personal stories i'm not i'm not naming any names but i know there's a a few very famous auteurs out there who fall into the description of the exploitative rogue. Yeah, certainly having that being a commodity unto yourself and, you know, the name that's going to sell the picture or whatever is a ridiculous amount of power. <laughs> yeah, the king of the party. How many iterations would a mix like this go through? Are you pretty intuitive about it or do you kind of overthink every little thing? I try not to overthink at all. And I try to, yeah, I am that by nature intuitive and yeah i think if you overthink something you kill it and you take the freshness away from it but this is one of the most complex mixes i've ever done yeah they did take several attempts you know to get it where i wanted it to be but still all the way through that process intensive though it is it's still colored by spontaneity i mean that whole idea to put the strings backwards came up you know just before we committed it to the final mix down it was a last minute idea Let's try this, you know. So I love doing that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you're such a word-oriented guy that quite a few of your songs and most of your songs could just stand. I mean, when you're reading lines like, when you've tasted the sugar of Moloch and you've sung to the gods of sweet smack, that doesn't need a lot of dressing up for that kind of poetry. You know, you just need something to make it a little bit hummable. To color the words. I mean, the music is there to color the words and to point the words. I'm actually working on a book of poetry that's going to be published probably early next year. Ah. And it will include some of the the more spoken word pieces that I've made on records, including one that we're going to talk about a bit later, the uh, eulogy for Jeff Buckley. Well, let's go first to our second song, Vaudeville Ghost Light. So tell me about this Carpe Noctum album that I have to keep looking up the band name, MC Nightshade and the Theatre Bazaar Orchestra. Well, how that whole thing came about, Theatre Bazaar is an event that's been running for about 18 years in Detroit. It started completely underground, totally illegal, and um, extremely dangerous endeavor in a, like, an old sort of waste ground area in a very dangerous part of Detroit City. 
it's really the vision of John Donovan, who is a brilliant artist, fevered imagination writ large and made manifest in the form of the ultimate Halloween spectacular party. It's pretty, but it's more than a party. It's sort of like an opiated fever dream of a Halloween phantasmagorical journey into the night side of the fall. It's now moved to the an incredible, very imposing Gothic building, which takes up a whole city block, actually, the Masonic Temple in Detroit. It's the perfect uh, environment for it. It's very kind of satanic feeling. I'd been invited for some years to do something there. I was there a few years ago. I was booked as a DJ. This happens over two days, over a weekend in Halloween time. And uh, I was invited to the gala night. I was booked to DJ the next night on the Saturday, but I was invited to the very elegant gala night which happens on the friday and the band performing there was it wasn't the theater bazaar orchestra as it's known now they were called planet d nonnet and they were nine-piece band swing orchestra harking back to the 1920s 30s cab calloway kind of feel they were a magnificent band i checked them out when i saw that they were on the bill and i got this idea of maybe we could collaborate and i could join them for a song so i wrote to the band leader joshua james suggesting this and he really liked the idea and he, he said well let's do more than one let's do a three so we did a uh, we did a version of beck's cloaks and we did saint james infirmary and we did bella lugosi's bed in the style of cab calloway really it was again it was very spontaneous we just had one run through on the day and i just dived in and i never sung with a third this was a nine-piece jazz band as i say mainly brass there was a moment just before I, I went on stage. This is, a, this is a mask ball, so you have to wear a mask. And I had fabricated a makeshift mask just prior to um, going to the event. And I'd stuck some electrical tape over my glasses. It was about 10 minutes before I was due to go on stage. And I was in the audience and this chap comes up to me. He, goes, he was really admiring of my glasses. <laughs> And the fact that I used electrical tape because he was an electrical technician and he was a glasses wearer like myself. He said, that's brilliant. I wish I'd thought of that. You know, you just put electrical tape on your glasses and made a mask. This mask is driving me mad because it's pressing into my goggles, you know. So he said, what do you do? I said, well, tonight I'm a fake jazz singer. He goes, really? What do you mean? I said, well, I'm about to join this band to sing a few songs. And he says, I don't think there's anything fake about you. I said, no. No, I just get the impression there's nothing fake about you. And if you say you're a jazz singer, you're not a fake, you're a jazz singer. Just go up there and be a jazz singer. So it's like something out of a Mickey Rooney movie. It was like a pep talk, which is just what I needed. And then literally, I had to go straight onto the stage and do the, do the numbers. And it worked out great. And it went down the storm and I came off. And then Joshua and a couple of the other guys ran over and very enthusiastically insisted that we did more work together. So there and then I said, okay, I'm up for it. <laughs> and then out of that seed grew what became the album, Carpe Noctem. We start, I started writing original songs with Joshua. He's a great arranger. And then, and then the band was augmented, so it became a 13-piece swing orchestra. And we called it the Theatre Bazaar Orchestra. And then we premiered the album live at the next event and we did a, a few other gigs as well jazz clubs when i go on to the stage in this context i felt different i didn't feel like me i felt like i was possessed by a character and that character i named mc nightshade and 
It's actually after the uh, Jim Nightshade, who's the main protagonist in Ray Bradbury's book, Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is one of the first books that ever really lit up my childhood brain in borrowing it from the Northampton Library. And I love that book. And, and the whole atmosphere of that book, the whole kind of haunted autumn, creepy carnival visits town and it's a magical, magical carnival. All of that is very much part and parcel of the world that is conjured up by this album.
So that was Vaudeville Ghost Light, which is not really typical from the rest of the album. Most of the rest of the album is very much a rave, uh, you know, with all the horns blaring full blast. Well, it's a full orchestra. It's a full swing orchestra. Yeah, that's the most understated and stark track. And it's actually the last thing we recorded. And it's just yes, the clarinet and the piano and the vocal, basically. Were the rest of the horns doing some pads there? It seemed like they were just, I could hear... No. Okay. Just the clarinet and just treated through some filters in the studio, piano in particular, which freaked out the piano player because he's a, he's a really straight-ahead jazz guy, really good pianist, but he's not used to, you know, studio trickery. So he, at the first, he was a bit alarmed by just me tweaking it out and making it a bit almost psychedelic in a way. But then he came around and he, he loves it now. I needed to evoke the atmosphere to, again, color the lyrics. And the lyrics are about, it's all about this ED. It's a like a vaudevillian age production that's gone to seed. And there's a sadness to it. There's also a, this kind of bruised glamour, the whole thing. And uh, it's melancholic. And the ghost light is, maybe you're familiar, but it's an old tradition in the theater to leave a a light on on the stage. Now, it's a particular type of lamp that's on a, on a long stand and it's an exposed bulb. Sometimes they have a, a grid, metal grid around them. There's two functions to this. One is it's superstitious and it's just to please the ameliorate spirits of the theatre. It's also there just as a low light to help the stage hands when they first come in, you know, and it's completely black. But it's the main reason for ghost light is to please the spirits. So this character that you're doing throughout the album, I didn't even hear a single character. It seemed like it was multiple characters, and this one in particular, with this sort of exaggerated, a little bit of vibrato and swooping up, it's sort of, I was reminded, because I had just read your book over the last three days, and you talk about during the reunion, Peter Murphy recurrently just offstage doing this aging queen voice or something like that. And <laughs> so I was kind of projecting that onto this character here. Well, it's dramatic, and it's intentionally a little bit over the top, and and that's what comes out when I perform in the context of the Theatre Bazaar Orchestra. And that is this character. And it does have a pinch of the, the mercies about it. As opposed to the Carnival Barker or... No, well, that's part of it as well. No, the Carnival Barker, yeah, it's, he's a multifaceted uh. character. But all of those personas, they all kind of come together as one. There's a bit of the Tom Waits in it as well. Yes, definitely. Yeah, uh, you know, a huge Tom Waits, because you know, I know. And I wonder, I mean, you say this is a sad song, and certainly a lot of the the classical gestures that folks are doing, but it's like sad as part of a sad musical song. Like, it's not actually emotionally draining in that way. It's more just referring to the sadness rather than, you know, in the same way that vampire stuff is often, if it's referring to Halloween is often, you know, not actually scary. It's referring to scariness. It's bringing up some cultural trope. And this is kind of what I'm hearing here in terms of this, that there's something mixed to it, that there's self-consciously actory, that that's part of the character. Oh, yes, absolutely, yes. And it's melancholic, but in that melancholia, there's a beauty. Mm-hmm. There's a beauty in the sadness and a romance. It's very romantic. So you describe it as, you know, it's glitter that had faded, but the way that it's described yeah. is that even in its heyday, this kind of show, there's something cheap and goofy about it, so that it's almost a little redundant... <laughs> It's not that wowing the shills is just something that happens in the decline. It's that even in his prime, there's something depraved about this. Does that seem accurate? No. No? Um, okay. No, that's true. And, and also there's, 
there's the, the inevitability of the decline is going to happen. You know, so there's a seed of that sadness even in the, the golden time of its glowing moment, you know. I like that image of decay, that it's not just, you know, anything that it gets old decays, but then there's something about that word that suggests depravity that's definitely throughout this song. Yes, and there's a sinister element to it as well, especially with the depiction of the clowns. I wasn't aware that the collective now for uh, clowns is a shudder. I was delighted to find that out. A shudder, there's a shudder. Okay. Of clowns in the alley. Yeah, and I'm using a lot of like uh, carny words there, terminology. That's very, very rich. I went into that, you know, I re- researched that a bit, and it's very a rich lexicon. In terms of the arrangement decisions here, I mean, the fact that you had all this, these pieces at your disposal, I could definitely hear in the chorus some backing vocals or something, but no, you just, the, the piano is doing the harmony. It doesn't need anything else. Again, you said this is the last thing you recorded, or was that just part of this that unlike the auteur, you know, we're not going to overproduce this in any way. This has got to be what you would do on stage pretty much exactly, apart from these studio tweaking you're talking about. Yes, absolutely. And we did it in one take, live vocals and all. Wow. All of those tracks just to, so, you know, I was responding to the band and vice versa. So it has that spontaneity and it makes it very live. And we recorded it in the old way that a band in the 1930s would be recorded, which is all down to minimal mic place and you get a lot of spill. But that, I love that. There's a beauty in that. And it, so, you know, you get sound leaking from the trumpet into the trombone and the drums leak through a bit. That all becomes glue for the sound. It holds it all together. So even the chimes were not an overdub here? Did you actually have the chimes next to you, save for the ghost light? Ring. That was an overdub. That's one okay. of the very, <laughs> very few. Yes, but most of it, most of the album is just live. I really like the version of, again, mentioning Nick Cave, the Carney. And that was a magical, that was giving me shivers as I was doing that track. Yeah. And I think it's so evocative of of that scene. Yeah, it's really quite different in context. I, I'll refer folks to listen to the whole album because, you know, you're coming right of, out of an oompa oompa song into this, into an oompa pa, a, the carny that's a, this 3-4 with just dissonant horns all over the place in both those songs. Let's turn to another song, Eulogy for Jeff Buckley. We're looking back to 2011's Not Long for This World, which is another one. It sure as heck sounds like it was a very natural, organic you on guitar with a, a cello and a, a violin carrying through this. It doesn't even sound like, unlike many of your poetry projects, it doesn't sound like, you know, you had this pre-existing reading that you then put stuff behind. It sounds like, was this all live put together, this eulogy for Jeff Buckley, or how, how did this actually come together? Yes, it was It was all played live in the vocal again. Very similar to Theatre Bazaar, it was all done live. It's a collaboration, a writing collaboration, with a brilliant genius songwriter, Damien Youth who plays the guitar on the record. I came up with the, the lyrics. He came up with the basic music. He came out from Louisiana for the session. We recorded in Los Angeles. And it's actually, it's a violin. It's, it sounds Spavak on, on violin. And she plays this with this real kind of gypsy edge, the wildness to her playing. The piano there is Susan Green and it's stand-up bass, Tony Green, her husband. We had one attempt at this and it just wasn't clicking. Actually, we had like three attempts and it wasn't clicking. 
So we had decided to have a break. And in this studio, it's in Tony Green's house. So we went out onto his balcony and one of their, their friends was visiting. She was a poet, Terry. She was asking me what I was up to, you know, and we started talking about the problem of the session, you know. And we, she was saying about just going into a deep place, you know, and that's what she does with her poetry and just zoning in, you know. And it, that was actually, it was very inspiring for me. And so I said, well, let's go back to the band and let's really, let's try and find that deep space for this piece here. So we did it, one take, and it was, the length of it was three times the length of the original. We were doing it too fast, and it was just, but we found the zone, and it was a wonderful thing. That was written for a Jeff Buckley tribute event that happened in Pennsylvania at an old theater, like an old opera house, at which da- Damien Youth was performing as well. And he wrote a wonderful song called Broke Heart Singer about Jeff Buckley and performed that on the night. There was an interesting bit of synchronicity that happened on that night because I was in the hotel just getting ready to leave for the theatre and I had a, a cab arrive at the hotel. It was about a 10-minute ride to the theatre. Now, in the song, I refer to Jeff singing Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love. And apparently, when he was goofing around in the, the river, he was singing that to his band, just goofing about. And that's the last thing they heard him sing because he was found dead. <laughs> And I refer to it. And then, so I get into the cab, drive into the theater. And what comes on immediately is Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love. And the cab driver got it cranked up. And I, said, and I was like, whoa. And he said, oh, this is too loud. I said, no, no, turn it up. Turn it up. Okay. <laughs> so he turns it up. And that lasted for the duration of the, dr- the ride to the theater. And I thought, to me, that's the universe talking to you. That's direct cosmic information and such an inspiration. And uh, my cue to go on stage when Damien finished his set. Now, according to the plan, that wouldn't be for another 30 minutes, but everything was running ahead of time. And I walk into the theater, I see Damien on stage. And so it's like, what? I'm on after this song. So I literally had to walk onto the stage and do it, which was actually great because I didn't have time to think about it. And I just had this moment here in Whole Lot of Love and it informed the performance. And then I come off immediately afterwards and this woman runs up to me and it's Jeff Buckley's mother. And she just embraced me in a huge bear hug. And I could feel her tears running down my own cheeks. And she just said, thank you. So that was a beautiful a blessing from her, you know. It tells the story as I experienced it on the day when I found out that Jeff had died. And I referred to seeing him that one time in New York City. And how that came about was interesting because I hadn't planned to see Jeff Buckley perform. And I ran into my old friend, Hal Wilner, producer. And he said, I was actually on my way to see John Cale at the bottom line, but I was early. And Hal said, come and see Jeff. He is amazing. Come with me. So I did. <laughs> Totally spontaneous, and I walk in, and Jeff just comes on stage, and it was one of the most incredible performances I've ever seen. It was elevated. He was talking with the angels. He was singing with the angels. So I saw that, and then I immediately went down and saw John Cale play. So that was that night.
Many moons ago, I was staying with a friend in the East Village. One night, my hostess wanted to drag me to some joint down the road, a hole-in-the-wall coffee house, to see this kid who sang and played guitar there on Monday nights. Not up for focus and no alcohol, I declined. That kid turned out to be Jeff Buckley. I still have a bruise from the self-inflicted kick which followed. You can't see it, but it's there. It was a hot day, May in Massachusetts. I was walking through the dragonfly kissed tall grass back towards the house when the music on the radio stopped and a voice announced the news. News that made me stop dead in my tracks. I ran to the radio to listen. said that his body had been found floating in the Mississippi and the disembodied head of Orpheus immediately came to mind. That and the sirens of which his vagabond father once sang. Those two, father and son, dream brothers, night sailors, so distant yet so Confluence of poetry, tragedy, and soul. Both scuppered young, one on the rocks of addiction, the other falling foul of youthful goofball shoot the moon hijinks. Horseplay, fully clothed, boots and all, and swimming in the swirling of the wolf. Black water channel running to the great Mississippi, and there he would have drifted like some pale Ophelia, down past the Tupelo gum trees, swamp chestnut, oak, and red maple, down to the poisonous effluvium of chemicals and silt, coldly observed by the indigenous wildlife. Otters, mink, and polecats, and the narrowed eyes of spectral Chickasaw braves. Down through a slalom of black gum. The spatterdock grazing deer at river's edge. On then, garlanded by swamp rose and iris, iron weed and flux, 
bottom feeders in the alluvium, oblivious of the floating form above. Led Zeppelin's whole lot of love was the last thing that he sang. Sang there in the harbor before embarking on that voyage. By the waves in the land that leaks, the ghost of his AWOL father calling to him there, there beyond the shores of his lost beloved. Tennessee shotgun shack The billowing reeds Tipping like fingers at the door Skinny arms Waiting to enfold Irish, Greek, French blood coursing through his veins as the panic kicked, then stilled as the pulse gave out. As the pulse gave out. The year of grace His voice soared angelic Like skylarks made of sound Reconstructing the architecture of the venue And transforming it into a cathedral of light body was recovered after one long dreaming week and the realization set in that the world had lost his voice it came with the force of a blow and like everyone who felt it I still have a bruise you can't see it 
but it's there. So we don't need to necessarily dive deep into the specifics of line by line. There's a lot of lines here, but I really like the back and forth between, you know, when you start the song, I just thought, okay, this is just like something out of his book. This is like one of his blog posts. <laughs> this is, but then you, you immediately, you get pretty quickly to sort of heavy duty spiritual poetry. So it's goes, goes back and forth between these mundane, yeah, I went out to the club or I didn't, you know, I, but I didn't see him. But then when you get to the, the self-inflicted kick that followed, you can't see it, but it's there. Mm. Then that sort of establishes, mm. kind of sets the spiritual tone up. And then you've got these really choice, obviously, as you say, it just was the energy of the room at the time breaks that you just let the instruments switch to another riff, let the violin seethe a little bit, which he has so much that he can do that he fills, you know, it's like five different times where he has a little tiny instrumental break and he's always doing something different in it. That's a she, actually. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, just remarkable. A lot of it was is very from the heart and what I felt about Jeff Buckley. I think Jeff Buckley, was, there was something angelic about him. I think he was a gift to the world. But I, I wanted to, beyond that, I also wanted to put that into the context of his background, where he came from, where he was when he died. And the whole thing was very key, his relationship with his father that was not really any relationship at all because he left very early on and had hardly any interaction, but he was there as a kind of ghost. And then these ghosts, they commune in the moment of Jeff's passing and Tim Buckley appears to him. I'm a huge Tim Buckley fan as well. I've always loved Tim Buckley's work. Great artist, but terrible father. That was very key. That's very key to the whole piece, you know, that relationship or lack of or just the strange kind of connection they had. So I, I'm not familiar enough with Tim Buckley's catalog. I've heard some of his albums, but to know specifically about the sirens. Well, you heard Songs of a Siren, right? You know that one? It's a, I mean, classic. I re- it's a re- reference to that. Yep. Tim Buckley abandoned. I mean, he just left. Yeah. He's fucked off and left the baby, you know? Yeah, I had Gary Lucas on the show a while ago, so I, I watched the film with the fictionalized version of the story that goes back and forth between him and his father's story. Yes. Super interesting. And probably also is about that same tribute concert that you're talking about, that you were in, I think is depicted in that film. Uh, no, that's a different one. That's, that was the first one they did at St. Okay. Anne's in New York City. And that was put on by Hal Wilner, who, if you remember, that's how I, I got to see Jeff, because... Hal Wilner was on his way to see him at the supper club in New York. So it was just by chance I ran into Wilner and he said, you know, come along, see this kid. But as I also say in the song, I was in New York when Jeff first started playing and he was just playing around the corner because nobody knew him. And the girl I was staying with, she said, come see this guy's really great. You know, I said, what is it? And he said, oh, he plays guitar. He's kind of folky. And I just wasn't in the mood for it. I just wanted to stay in. So <laughs> I had to kick myself, as I say in the song later on, for missing that. And then we get very quickly to the connection to the sirens, the connection to Orpheus, and this technique of listing the specific wildlife and the specific trees. Yes. Can you say a little about that? It's an evocation of environment, and beyond that, you know, the whole thing of the Indians, you know, the ghosts of the Indians standing on the riverbank, you know, watching, they can see this passing, this drowned, beautiful boy. And then the bottom feeders, oblivious underneath to this god that's passing above them. And also the vision of Ophelia came to me, and him being garlanded by all these these reeds and, and river flowers, you know, it's a very beautiful 
melancholic poetic image. So there's a good chunk of your book where you're describing that your technique in putting together these fetish sculptures, you know, using bones and found objects and things, is the the technique for writing a poem. Is that kind of comparable? That it, it sounded like you're kind of entering this, I want to say, altered state, but it doesn't necessarily involve drugs. I've never thought of that connection, but there is something to that. Yes. And in the process in, for both is, to a degree, shamanic. So is that compatible with like sitting on the bus writing these kind of lyrics? Or is it really only at three o'clock in the morning when you're filled with the spirit of getting down and feverishly writing four pages of which three paragraph ends up being the song? Can you say anything about your your technique? That state can come upon one anywhere. It can be 30,000 feet up in the air in a, in a plane or in a you know, writer's hermitage in the woods. You know, it doesn't matter. The muse, you know, appears by surprise in all sorts of situations. But use I mean there are there are environments that are more conducive, obviously. When it happens when I'm in a place that's dark and quiet and I can light a candle and pour a little whiskey and go into the zone there. Usually the writing on the plane, I often hone lyric when I'm on a plane. So it's something I've written in the candlelit cave and then I'm just I'm honing it changing a word here and there those two environments do have something in common and I yeah I share that I feel like I wrote a lot of my best lyrics while sitting in seminars that I was just bored during that you can't get up on the plane you can't get up and run around so so you might as well another one like that is driving long distance car drives I find uh-huh. really good for writing lyrics because you're in that in a certain kind of brain wave state and so the, it's a good thing. And it's repetitive, you know, just a repetitive action of driving. I find that's very conducive to writing lyrics. Do you find, because I'm often, when I'm driving, you know, I'm listening to some other music in the car, and it's it's definitely not been terribly uncommon that I'll start writing a lyric because I'm more or less singing against some other song. And then, of course, I lift it out of that context, and it doesn't sound anything like this, the song that it might have been rooted to. But just the fact that there's, you know, there's music playing and that kind of gets a rhythm that can then set up something. I mean, is that, or do you just, you know, shut all the extra sound down and that's when your head is producing the poetry? Yes, I shut everything down, don't listen to anything. The only rhythm is the rhythm of the tires on the road. Or sometimes if it's raining, that's very conducive. I find the rain really conducive to writing because it makes this kind of static on which you can project your imagination. And it's the rain to me, it's very romantic, something very romantic about hearing rainfall. So if California drivers see someone that looks like you uh, scribbling on a piece of paper while driving in the rain, don't worry, he's a professional. <laughs> I very rarely, actually, <laughs> what I will do if it comes to it is I'll have my phone and I record into uh, my, my, whatever it's called, a voice thing. Sometimes I like, I put it on pause, you know, and then I'll come up with another line. So by the end of the journey, I've got a sketch for a song, you know, and a melody as well, quite often is the case. There's a wonderful invention that we now have these with us at all times. I carried a recording Walkman with me for many years. Well, it's a double-edged, very double-edged, yes. I hate it and love it. I love Shazam, that's for sure. That's an amazing app. Because I'm always like, listening for new music and inspiration. So just to put my thumb on the Shazam button, and there it is. That's amazing to me. I find more often that I have a melody in my head that I'm like, did I just rip that off of something? And I try to sing it into Shazam. That doesn't work. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not what it's made for. It's not that smart. Name that tune. 
Well, let's get our last song out there. We're just going to introduce, which is a, a song. You're singing it. It's not a poem. I mean, it still has quite a lot of the story elements, quite a lot of narratively in common with what we just heard, but it's a straight ahead song with a giant, big old singable chorus that people should be waving their lighters around to. David Bowie died from Vagabond Songs. No, holding up their phones with the, <laughs> yes. app, with the, with the burning cigarette lights or the candle. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you, you, I could say a lot about this one. It's a big song for me because he was such a big influence and we had a little history together, you know, and we met on the set of The Hunger. I was looking at the jukebox and I uh, feel this presence behind me and I hear a voice. Do you mind if I pick one? And it's Bowie. So, of course, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> and he picked a grooving with Mr. Blow and started dancing in front of me. It was just me and him out there. This was in a little holding area outside of his dressing room. So it was totally surreal having this interaction. And then I was very cheeky and I said, this reminds me of something. He goes, oh, what's that? Without like breaking the dance moves. And so I said, it's one of yours. He goes, oh, what? So it's off of love. He goes, what? Which one? And I said, a new career in a new town. And with that, he puts his finger to his lips and winks and carries on dancing. So, because I always thought that song was taking the harmonica line from Bruno with Mr. Blow. So it was kind of confirmed there. And then years later, I'd buy Black Star. I was on tour playing my living room shows and I'd, I bought it the day it came out, played it the next night in Seattle and I was blown away by it. I just thought it was one of his best albums. And then the next night I go to Portland and he, I hear the news that he's died. So I listened to it again with an entirely different context. And then when it came to the last track, it can just destroy me because I heard again that same harm he's referring to that same harmonica line in a new career in a new town cribbed from grooving the mist blow and the revelation that it's so profound that I, I think what he was referring to there was a new career would be whatever he would be doing in a new town which would be the afterlife and i think it's that conscious and i just i lost it and then about half an hour later when i sort of pulled myself together I saw the guitar in the corner, in the corner, calling to me, a little Spanish guitar, and I picked up, picked it up, and wrote that song. So that poured out of me. I was lucky enough to have had a session booked at Revolver Studios in Portland to do something completely different, of course, the next day. But I used that studio time to record that song. So it was just so spontaneous, and there was something in the air. It was palpable, just the outpouring of emotion over Bowie's death and I feel like oh, I and all the other musicians who were on that session picked up on that and it went into the recording and there's, and it's magical because of that I don't know if it's ironic or entirely expected that you seem to have become somewhat of a specialist obviously not in every song but you had the whole Not Long For This World album then mm. you got songs like this that are definitely so much of your most inspired work is about death Whereas Bauhaus kind of started as you refer to yourselves in the book as the undead. And that was the, the fashion sense. And that was one of the themes that was going. Obviously, you, you had serious artistic pretensions with Bauhaus, but there was also a sense of humor. And mm. like I was saying before about vaudeville, that there's something sort of Halloween-y about the original, yes. you know, we're young guys in a death punk band. And now dealing with actual death as an older person for whom it's a real possibility. It seems more like a real possibility. I don't know, was that a very gr a gradual? Say something about that transition from the, or was it very consistent that you really existentially centered and ready for uh, authentic death? No, it's become 
yeah, mortality, you know, as it becomes more impending, it becomes the whole subject becomes much more layered and rich and deeper. So that's reflected in the work. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really have so enjoyed completely immersing myself in your work for the last week and talking to you now. Thank you. I appreciate it. Boys were crying in the nightclub A late night lamentation closing bar I flicked my fag into the gutter It fled and sparked like a shooting star Flames for 
fulfilling needs Thank you so much to David J. Again, you can find out more at davidjonline.com. I'd also recommend you look him up on Bandcamp. That's davidjofficial.bandcamp.com. Because you can hear streaming, he's got some recent cover versions of songs, some collaborations, his work for stage musicals. There's a lot more, including the Bauhaus Reunion album. If you're a Bauhaus fan, I would definitely recommend his book, Who Killed Mr. Moonlight, which is very exhaustive about everything that Bauhaus did both in its heyday and during the reunion, and why that band broke up. I'm very happy to now have two of the four members of that band on this podcast now. Again, if you have not heard my interview with Daniel Ash, you should go find that at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. If you have suggestions for guests you'd like me to cover, feel free to email me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or go post a comment on the blog. As always, we would appreciate your support. That's patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I'll be honest, I love doing these interviews but I'll be much more motivated to post them regularly and promptly if I have tangible evidence through numbers of supporters that people really are listening to these and appreciate them. Support us if you enjoy it. I'm thrilled next time to release my interview with XTC's Colin Molding. I have about six other interviews already recorded, ones with Roxy Music's Phil Manzanera, Nick Solomon from the Bevis Frond, Sean Phillips, Tara Lynch, and Rod Peacott. And I have one already recorded with Pratik Kuhad awaiting the release of his new EP. So please subscribe at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com to hear all that eventually. I'm going to slow down my recording a little. I have one more next week. I'm going to take most of June off, I think. But you likely will not notice a gap at all. Hope everybody's doing well out there. Keep on musicking. Till next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill.